My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. A Daniel website profile of Scottish international sea angler Steve Souter, who I'm linking up here with today, says that when he's around, fish are not safe. Quite a bold claim, but with a track record such as yours, one quite readily supported by the stats. Okay, well, I mean, the first thing to say is probably that I don't write those descriptions, so it's, it's quite embarrassing. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, I fished for a long time. I mean, as long as I can remember. And I've done what most people do. I started on the beach, catching flounders and, and coalies and stuff, and then progressed to the boat. And obviously, we're joining a few clubs and things. The boat fishing, particularly for me, got a little bit more competitive, whereby you fished a few club competitions. You did quite well in those. And I was quite lucky in that one or two of the clubs that I fished in had good anglers for the time. A couple of guys that spring to mind. One guy called Jim Meeklejohn, who you might remember. He's 25 years in the past now. And another guy called Adrian Black were both Scottish internationals on the boat at that time. So there was good guys to learn from and good guys to aspire to. So my progression then went into the open competitions fishing alongside these guys. And uh, like anything, when you start out, it's it's a bit of a, a hard learning curve. You take quite a few kick-ins to begin with till you begin to learn from your mistakes and get better. And me fishing with those guys sort of I suppose kindled my interest in the international scene, where obviously there was a want to fish for your country, to fish for Scotland, but I didn't really understand it in the early days. It was it was a complicated process. I just thought, you know, you had to win lots of competitions to get there. But back in those days, you had to win the competitions or you had to get consistently good results, and then you had to go through a process of applying, which I did, and the first couple of years it was a bit disappointing that I didn't get in and then got an opportunity to get in and as fate would have it was fishing with the two guys that I mentioned uh, yeah and, and went from there really and consistently did quite well in, in some of the open competitions within Scotland progressed the home nations level which was sort of the, the first tier of, of the, the international ladder as it were and didn't set the world alight to begin with because it's a whole new different element team fishing's different um, egos within teams, there's all sort of things you have to learn to contend with at that level. But that's where it went from. From there I went on to fishing for Scotland regularly, world, home international and European level. And I've done that ever since really for the best part of 30 years. So yeah, I mean reputations are all very well and good but it's the old adage, I quote this quite regularly, you're only as good as your next result. There's rubbish about, you know, you're only as good as your last result. That's in the eyes of the world. In your own mind, you're only as good as the next thing. So if you win, it doesn't really matter. It's gone. You've got to try and win the next one. And, and that's how I try and maintain my focus. But yeah, yeah, very good to be quite well regarded in the scene, as it were. Speaking of wins, how is the old CV shaping up? Oh, I mean, if, if we're going to go down the list, I mean, the easiest way to do it is probably to split it to domestic and international. International level, which if we take it as the highest level, as a team unit, bear in mind that you're not really fishing for individual owners here, it's, it's team owners, team gold as it were. I think I've got five international team goals at home nations level. I've been a top individual a few times, but that really doesn't matter because you're all part of, of the team as it were. World level, we haven't set the world alight at world level and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't have the strongest or the largest pool of anglers to pick from at world level because it's really, really unforgiving. One mistake and a team of five and, and game's over. 
So yeah, although we still aspire to do things there, that's a tough ask. European level, yeah, we've done well. We've won international team goals there and done quite well. As far as domestic matches go, I suppose if you want to know what my best result was over the years, it's open to debate, but I think winning the English boat on the south coast out of Weymouth a few years back was one of my, my real highlights because it's, it's, it's really, really difficult for what you would regard as a cotton-pollock man from the north to go into the south coast of England in amongst all the top sort of bream anglers and the bit-bashers, as we call them, and come out and talk. But I've done that. Um, I subsequently have done quite well on the south coast, won quite a lot of competitions down there. But, yeah, I think of, of all the comps, I've won the vast majority, and I've won all the ones I wanted to win up until a certain point. Now there's one or two new ones, like the the Y-back competition, a five-day event out of Weymouth, a new event. I fished that for the first time last year. That was interesting. I would really quite like to win that. Beyond that, yeah, I don't know that there's much left for me to go out and win, to be honest. Nothing that, that really tickles my fancy, but you never know, something will come along. Sticking with the international scene for the moment, you've been racking up the caps of Scotland for the best part of 30 years now. So how does this sort of thing come about? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm bound to get stray a bit here, but thinking about it, I mean, I got involved in the international scene because I wanted to first and foremost and, and the way that, that you do that is yeah you get some good results but then you have to apply to the governing body. There's actually two authorities within Scotland and England that are responsible for picking international teams. You have EFSA which is the European Federation of Sea Anglers where you represent the EFSA section of your country, EFSA Scotland, EFSA England, EFSA Wales, whatever. And then there's the Scottish Federation of Sea Anglers, which is the real Scottish cap, if you want to call it that. They are the governing body. In the same way that um, the Anglin Trust is in England now. That's the proper caps, as it were. And, and to get into either team, you have to apply. You have to fill out an application form. Uh, the standard is three years results in major competitions with a little bit of sort of extra information based on your own history, based on what you do at club level, based on your experience. Once you've done it a few times, the selectors know who you are anyway, so they're only interested in your current form. But it's all about form. It's all about being up there. And then the more that you fish in your international team, you've also got international experience, international results to call upon, which, again, is a big thing. That's the reason why the nucleus international teams tend not to change because that experience is invaluable and it probably is only sensible, like in any sport, to, to blood new individuals every now and again rather than give yourself a complete new set of five anglers. The chances are that without that experience they would come a cropper. But yeah, I mean, that's how I started. I just applied and, and uh, I, I did pretty well early doors and have stayed at it ever since. But it's a tough ask, I tell you. I mean, a lot of people aspire to fish for their country. And they think that that's the pinnacle, being there, got the t-shirt type of thing. I've lost count of the number of ex-international anglers that say that. But the fact of the matter is, it's only the beginning. Once you get to international level, that's the start of the next level. In other words, you have to then achieve at that level. And it's about performing consistently well at that level, rather than just getting there and saying, being there, got the t-shirt. Because that invariably means you got there and, and you blew it. You didn't fish very well, or you didn't learn from the experience, or you were overawed by the experience and you disappeared. So international fishing is a different mentality. It's a different mindset. Um, and to a certain extent, you cannot be as selfish as you are when you're fishing, or as, as you might be when you're fishing an individual event because you're not fishing for you, you're fishing as well as you possibly can for the unit. And that's a different thing, and, and to be honest, 
it's something that an awful lot of anglers never quite get, you know, they never quite crack it, hence the reason they either don't get selected in the first place, or their international career was over in a heartbeat. In terms of um, keeping it going, the amount of work that goes into it is, is what people don't see. It's a constant diet of travelling, which is the biggest bind for me, travelling to venues all over the country eats up precious time and to me it's a waste of life. I wish I could just press a button and bingo be there. But on top of that, you've got rig building, you've got bait preparation, you've got bait collection, you've got bait maintenance, you've got networking, you've got to get in touch, you've got to do your reconnaissance on the venues. And it depends on the venues a lot of the time. I mean, if it's a venue you've been at before, you know you've got a good head start. You, you know generally how it's going to fish and you top that information up just with current information by speaking to somebody who's, who's local to that area or to somebody who's visited that area and done quite well recently. But again, if it's a new venue you've never been to for the first time, and bear in mind that in a competitive environment, key good information is withheld. People don't give it up easily because the home team or the local team or the local anglers often want to keep things under wraps. It's, it's competition. is understandable, I think. So that can be tougher because you, you need to then crack a nut. You know, you need to try and get in there and find out exactly what's happening, and that might involve travelling to the venue in advance. Now if that's the south coast of England that might mean giving up another three or four days of your life, your work travelling down, practising on the venue and making it all make sense, i.e. the conditions, the tides, the venue, the marks, the skippers, the preferences of particular skippers. It is never ending. It's never ending and it's it can be difficult to stay enthused to be honest right through the piece. I mean often I say to myself I think God I need this anymore. But it's like a drug. You cannot, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to, to give up and walk away from. So my advice to anybody getting into this is be aware of what you're letting yourself in for because it is all consuming. There is a downside to it all as well in that most other aspects of your life, your family, your other interests, all have to go onto the back burner until the international curtain finally closes once and for all. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's like any long-term big commitment. You, you have to make sacrifices. If you're going to be successful at anything, there's always a cost. There's no two ways about that. Personally speaking, if, if I've got to... Do I have regrets? Yeah, I have some. What suffers? Family. No two ways about it. Family suffers. Oddly enough, when you get into this, again, like any sport, you're of an age. You're young. You probably are not as, as financially set as you might be later in life. Um, so there's strains on budgets, there's things that don't get bought for the house because you've got to go fishing or you, you've got to pay a match entry fee, you've got to you've got to buy a bit of kit, like back in the day when we used to buy a lot of tackle, you've got to make sacrifices there, there's real strain on your time as well, you don't see your family as much if you've got young children, you miss out on quite a bit, and I certainly did that, I, I missed out on quite a lot of the kids growing up, you know, because I, I was never here, I work, work, work all the time, or did at the time, and then obviously any spare time you've got is either doing what I've said before, you're either rig building, you're either travelling to venues, you're fishing matches, you're collecting bait, it's, time is the thing, you do miss out on a lot of things at home, and anything else you're interested in, I mean, darts are a big thing to me, it's my sort of, um, I don't know, it's how I, I relax a little bit, I watch a lot of darts, I'm absolutely pathetic at the game, but I'm a student of the game, I have been all my life. And I like to get away to some of these events, get and see some of the darts things and do as much as I can. In the early days, I never got to do any of that. Even now, it's tough because even though we get a bit older, a bit greyer, a bit fatter, a little bit longer in the tooth, I seem to find that the time constraints are just as bloody bad. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't get five minutes to do things. 
at the busiest time of year, which is generally May through to about October, is absolutely flat out, flat out. And you're not too keen on the blazer-wearing aspect of it either. Yeah, I've always been a bit of a rebel, I think. When it comes to um, being conformist, I don't know, I I think the teenage me kicks in a little bit. When it comes to um, the international side of things, you basically have to get suited and booted. And it's not, how would I put it, I'm not most comfortable doing that. I mean, the silliness about it as well, in that a lot of people love the blazer wearing, they love the shirt and tie. We, we call them badgers, you know, they're people that love wearing like pin badges and so on badges. I, I can't stand any of that, I just want to go fishing. But sometimes, you know, you have to, it's a condition of getting picked. You, you have to wear the blazer, you have to go to the official functions, you have to, you know, you have to do things that generally I'd rather be sorting my kit out. For example, the European events and the world events, there's a parade through the town, which I absolutely despise. I mean, I think, Jesus, it's fishing, not Formula One. Why are we parading about here carrying a flag and everybody looking down the street thinking, what's this all about? Because it is, it's fishing. And I don't know, to me, fishing should be about the job in hand, catching fish, getting ready for catching fish and doing it. The glory side of it, where people do the pigeon-chested thing, you know, walking up and down the street and wearing the blazer, that don't sit well with me. But there again, I never liked wearing a uniform at school, so it maybe goes back to that. You said when we were chatting earlier that competition fishing is currently slipping into decline. Some would say that fishing generally, and in particular boat fishing, is also very much on the slide. Why then do you think that is? Yeah, I don't think there's there's any getting away from this. I think competition fishing is definitely on the decline for a lot of reasons. Boat fishing generally is on the decline. There's various reasons. The first one has to be that the fishing is not, I'm not going to say not as good as it used to be because I think there are instances and areas and species that the fishing's actually better than it used to be. But I do believe that it changes. It's changing. A lot of traditionalists who used to fish in a particular way have maybe been left behind, so they drift away from the competition scene because they find it harder to get results because they don't move with the changes, they don't embrace change. Skippers and boats are not as available as they used to be. We've got ports in Scotland and the northeast of England that I travel regularly whereby there are no charter boats whatsoever anymore. Hence, they've seen an increase in the interest in small boat fishing. And I've always really been a charter boat angler, so there's a bit of that. And there's also the fact that when we fish events now, as opposed to when I used to, very often there's no junior section. You don't see any juniors. I think this is well documented. Back in the day, there was a fairly, I wouldn't say it was a huge junior section, but there was always fresh blood. There was always an interest in the junior section. Now we see very little of that. Is that because um, younger people, kids, are, are up to the neck in the digital age? I think the answer to that has to be yes. I mean, I'd use my own two boys as an example of that. Andrew, my eldest, is 20, Callum's now 17, and they are, although they go fishing and I take them fishing, I've never pushed fishing on them. It's not an addiction like it was with me. I mean, their addiction is is killing things on the Xbox or on the PC or whatever the hell they do. Whereas back then, I suppose you wanted to go out. Now, that was your recreational time, whether it was kicking a football against the wall or going down the beach and having a chuck for flounders or going down the pond and having a chuck for perch. There was a lot more outdoor goings on back in the day. So I think we, we don't have the fresh blood. I think it's, it's a difficult thing to say, but I think it's boat fishing, certainly competition boat fishing, I believe is in terminal decline. I think our game is a dying game. I don't think 
that there will be anything like as many competitions 10 years from now, if indeed there are any chartable competitions at all. Now I know that you have very strong views on conservation, and equally, I also know that if I push hard enough, you'll always say things as you see them, regardless of what others might feel. So at the risk of tempting you into troubled waters, is the current poor health of fish stocks, for whatever reason, playing its part here, with nowhere near enough fish to keep Mr Average interested? Well, I'm going to back that question aside, but I'm, I'm going to go down a different track. Conservation to me is, I'm not going to describe it so much as a necessary evil. It's something that we all have to be aware of and we all have to adhere to up to a point. My problem with conservation, and I mean, it's not just my problem. I mean, you could look at discards and all that kind of thing that, that really fly in the face of what conservation should be all about. But my problem with conservation is, as an angler who has always fished and who loves to fish and, and basically has done things their own way for a long time, I find it very, very difficult to tell somebody not to do something, i.e. don't kill five fish as opposed to, you know, don't kill one fish or don't kill any fish. And I think there's a lot of people quite enjoy or get off on preaching to anglers what to do and what not to do. My experience of competition fishing is that back in the day, we used to, and I'm going back a lot of years now, probably 15 plus years, many of the competitions were catch and kill. So you knocked everything on the head that was of a legal size, you brought it in, there was a weigh in, and you were awarded a straight weight or points based on your weight. Now, I don't fish any competitions at all that are catch and kill. There's still the option to take a couple of fish for the table if you're fishing for whitefish, i.e. haddock, cod, whatever, you want to take a couple, nobody's got a problem with that. But I think, as anglers, we do an awful lot for conservation as it is. Um, what I don't welcome is people who sit on committees who don't fish or who fish once in a blue moon and preach to me and other anglers that we should be doing this and we should be doing that, when in fact we're actually doing a lot already and I don't think we deserve that. I think their efforts and their energies would be better spent moaning at politicians. And there's one or two other people who, I mean, again, I'm talking about Scotland here, who have made inroads on the political side of things and, and have done some good things. Equally, there's those that treat competition angles or regard them as, as, as terrorists, and to me it's just conservation Nazism and I could do without it. Best probably not to push any harder then. That's all you're getting. <laughs> now in stark contrast here, when the boat competition season is over towards the end of the summer through till the following spring, I believe that you like nothing more than to put the boat tackle into storage and pleasure fish from the shore. Yeah, come October time, I'm not quite burnt out, but I'm close to it. And again, that's nothing to do with the fishing, it's all about the travelling. It's the travelling that eats me up. And come about, yeah, October time, sometimes a little bit earlier, I'm actually quite glad, and, and a lot of people probably wouldn't believe this, to hang up my boat fishing gear and just put it away for four or five months. And what I tend to do then is, other than sorting gear out for the following season, because there's a lot to be done in advance of things kicking in again in May, is I do an awful lot of shore fishing. I like nothing more than some of the local beaches, some of them are quite remote, just to drive away at one of these beaches and wander and just fish for whatever it may be. It can be turbot flounders locally through the autumn and into the winter. We get some really good fishing. It's, it's easy fishing. There's no prep involved. There's very little bait prep involved, rig prep. I enjoy that, that's, that's my get my head together time and um, the last three or four years I've done a lot of LRF fishing which I really enjoy, a lot of people don't get it but it, it's all relative, fishing with a toothpick rod and tiny little lures and hooks 
to me, catching a, a three-inch pouting, whatever it may be, a, a three-inch pollock, a coldfish or something, it's all relative. On that kind of gear, it's the same as catching a three-pound codlin on a brush handle. So, yeah, I, I do quite enjoy that. And what I found with LRF fishing during my downtime, um, there's complications in Scotland because the waters are not as temperate. So when the water temperature dies away, the fish numbers that the, the guys on the south coast see are not here in Scotland. You've got to work harder for them. But what I find is that the LRF really, really improves my fishing touch. It's great touch fishing. What used to happen, I used to find at the start of the season, come May, when I get back into boat fishing, it can sometimes take me a couple of matches to really feel that I'm timing everything right, that my, that my hands and my eyes and everything's there. LRF fishing in the downtime means now that I can usually go in at the start of the match fishing and hit the ground running, you know. So, yeah, and that's what I do out of the fishing season. Any particular standout trip from the shore? Maybe even doors fished abroad. I'm not big on foreign fishing for a lot of reasons. Again, my holiday time, believe it or not, is just about eating up where if it's not commitments to like say, to Daiwa or commitments to the various whoever I'm writing for at the time on the magazines or actual match fishing and fishing commitments, it's very, very rare for me to have like a week where I can just say, right, we're going on holiday for a week and we're going to travel here, there and everywhere. I'm hoping that that will come about in the next little while as things slow down a little bit. But no, I mean, it's, it catches from the shore. I mean, I've twice had memorable, really good cod catches from the shore in the winter. I've twice had over £100 off the rocks. That, nowadays, is quite an achievement. But to be fair, in Scotland, on the rocks, in the winter, on the right marks, on the right tides, it is not difficult to catch quite a lot of codling. But there again, I've had plenty of other times when I went out and I caught nothing, so <laughs> there you go. So is that how your future fishing is going to pan out then, when you retire from the ball scene? I don't know, I think it, it's always going to be there as part of me. I mean, I live close to the beach and the shore, so stealing a few hours on the beach is, is never an issue. Uh, it's good, you know, I quite enjoy that time. Going forward, I think I'll always be involved in boat fishing to some extent, unless I lose the power of my legs, you know, I think I'll always be on boats, I think I'll always be fishing. I don't think I'll be competition fishing quite as much. To be honest, I try and do less competition fishing every year, it just never seems to pan out like that. But no, going forward, I think I'll be keen to still be involved in um, tackle development, I suppose, a lot of that, and that has to be done properly out in the field. You cannot do it in a room, bending rods and playing reels over a table. It doesn't work like that. You've got to go out and get the gear dirty, get the gear wet. So I, I, think, I think, yeah, maybe a small boat. I may do it. I've resisted the temptation to get a small boat for years because it's just, to me, it just smacks some more work. I've always been at, take me to the fish and I'll catch some rather than launch the boat, take me to the fish, do the fish and retrieve the boat and all the nonsense that goes down that road. I'd rather not have that for the minute. But in the future, I might have to resort to that. Can we just expand a little more on the consultancy work here? Because most people think it means getting a load of free tackle dropped in your lap, then going out and playing with it. But I know that it isn't. Objective feedback based on good sound knowledge of what you're feeding back on is absolutely essential. Otherwise, it's all a waste of time. Tackle consultant, it's not a term I'm, I'm comfortable with. I don't like it. And I suppose it's, it depends... It means different things to different people, and uh, I think, like in anything, you get good tackle consultants, and you get you get ones that are not so good. For me, it's never been about free gear. Free gear is lovely, don't get me wrong, but there's a price to be paid for everything. I think you see it with certain consultants who who, who jump from or name anglers who jump from company to company. Every five minutes, they've got a different hat on, a different badge. I've never done that. I've I've really 
been involved with the same companies more or less all the way through and that loyalty means it's a two-way street for everything that you get and you work on you have to give something back and I'm a firm believer that if you're going out and there's a rod project let's say just pull something out of thin air that you don't just say yeah it's a great rod wonderful stick my name on it or whatever you go out and you actively put that rod through its paces in different situations you feedback on that you change it you tweak it and it's very seldom with me that, that a rod, for example, would be the, the prototype or the sample that comes through. There's every likelihood there'll be five or six incarnations of that particular rod before, in fact, it goes to production. So that can take a year. You know, it can take six months, depending on schedules. It can take a year, but you have to do things right. I'm absolutely OCD about preparation and fishing preparation, and I'm exactly the same when it comes to tackle development. In terms of consultancy, I suppose the role is, is it's a two or a three part deal in that you've got the product development side of things and your involvement in that. You've also got the endorsement side of things, which means yep, you wear the cap, you wear the badge. And I'm a firm believer that, that you should only ever do that if you're absolutely committed to the company you're with. I mean, I've been with Iowa for 10 years and then more before I was on the books. And as I say to anybody, the, the tackle that I now represent, the brand that I represent, the tackle I use, is the gear that I used to buy when I was a lad and I, you know, I had to save up for it and get the gear. That's the kind of tackle consultant I want to see and I, I want to see genuine tackle stuff and genuine commitment to a brand and genuine enthusiasm for getting the product as good as it can possibly be. I see a lot of people who wear a hat and then fish with different gear. That annoys me. And it's right for this trade and it, and it shouldn't be the way it is. In the same way that tackle reviews, when people Obviously, I review quite a lot of tackle, and I try as far as possible to be as objective about the gear as I can be. Just because a rod costs 30 quid doesn't mean it's rubbish. It could be really good for a particular niche, for a particular thing. And I think you have to, the first thing you have to do is, is you have to specify what the product's good for. And then, in the same token, offset that against what it's not good for. As time goes on, it's very, very difficult now to find absolutely terrible tackle. There's great tackle. There's good tackle, there's not so good tackle, but there's very little actual tap out there now. So it's one of those things, I, I try and be as objective as possible when it comes to obviously developing tackle, but also when I'm reviewing it. And if I've got a barrier, it, it sometimes is the fact that I'll review competitor company tackle, whatever it may be, it might be a pen reel, for example. And some people think, uh, who put the gear out for review, that because I wear a dial hat, I'm going to diss the opposition's product. That, that just isn't true. I mean, there are items in my kit, and Daiwa know this, that are not Daiwa items within my, my kit. vast majority of them are, they are Daiwa items, but there are, for example, some of the more competitive, the continental-style match fishing we do, Daiwa don't make particular items to tackle for that, i.e. 5-metre telescopic rods on the boat, 5-metre boat rods, which to you as a boat angler would probably sound horrific. But there are situations where you need a long rod, i.e. bow draws, where casting's involved, where um, sometimes you want to fish a hook high in the water table and two on the bottom or one on the bottom. The only way to do that is to be able to fish a long rod so that your, your rig is the same length as your rod, as it were, so you can swing your hand. You sometimes have to use different tackles. So there are one or two items of tackle that we're looking to develop that aren't Daiwa things, but I will not say that, that something's rubbish just because it's, a, it's branded by a different company. That isn't the way I tick. What about self-promotion on the small screen through TV and video? Yeah, TV. I mean, um, Sky have been great, I think, for a lot of sports, and, and Sea Island's no different. Through the Tight Lines programme, now, I'm actually not sure how many years I've done it for, but 
I've done it since the beginning. There's something in the back of my head says my son was one year old, so that would be nearly 19 years. That's been a, a long time. And uh, yeah, that's we have to go down to London to do that. So I don't do it perhaps as often as I get asked to do it because again, time constraints make things difficult. But I enjoy the, the studio stuff. It's good to discuss sea fishing, you know, and, it, and it's good to, to talk about venues and maybe profile a bit of tackle. And, and, and the banter with Keith Arthur, who, who's been really good to me over the years, is, is excellent. I do enjoy that. And on top of that, we do some out-and-about fishing stuff. Um, the last real set of films I did was up in Shetland. We did. We broke Shetland to the world, as it were. Did a series of films up there and stuff like that. But yeah, I really quite enjoy that. I keep getting asked to do more, but the bottom line is uh, I just... I, don't have the time to, to fulfil every possibility that's there you know, in the future, things slow down a bit yeah, we might do a little bit more but at the moment, I do what I can when I can and let's also not forget the written word magazine articles, and of course your digital magazine, Planet Sea Fishing it's funny how the magazine work came about as well that, that was, it was a bit of a fluke, to be honest a bit of a fluke, it was a total fluke I got asked, again, this is oh, 25 plus years ago now, to do a, a little bit for, it was Sea Angler at the time, I think it was just like a coastal report or a little thing, and you know, it progressed from there, it, it went to bigger reports, it went to, again, tackle reviews, feature work, and I did really enjoy it, I mean, 25 years ago, you know, it, it helped to pay the mortgage, nowadays I do, same again, I do what I can when I can, and I suppose, much as I'm loath to admit it, old Mel Russ did me a turn or two he did a lot for me in the early days Mel Russ so yeah yeah. the, the magazine work was, was uh, or is still one of those things that I do commit to it as much as I can but I can't do as much as I would like on the digital side of things Planet Sea Fishing well, we started that as a website or a digital magazine some seven or eight years ago it's progressed through various guises in uh, basically an information platform I would like to take credit for, for everything there, but I can't because the guy that I work with, a guy called David Proudfoot, does a lot of the groundwork and a lot of the, the hard work on Planet now. But yeah, it does well. I mean, in, in terms of um, monthly readers, it's got something in the region of 30,000 uniques a month. So it's not bad when you look at some of the print media magazines, which, which are struggling to do 10,000, you know. So is digital and going completely paper-free the future as you see it? I don't know if completely paper-free is the future but certainly a better marriage between print media and the digital media is um, well it's essential if that doesn't happen magazines will go to the wall the problem you've got I think with the print media is that um, old school thinking older editors have got ways of working they don't embrace change particularly freely and I think what you see is that editors are maybe a little bit afraid to give too much away for nothing on the digital side because by and large the internet is largely free so they hold stuff back and give you tasters or the whole project's disjointed I mean Sea Angler are, are absolutely the, the typical example they're probably and there's no two ways about it in terms of presentation they're the best magazine out there always have been they've got the biggest budget the, the designers are very good everything about it is good but the marriage between the digital platforms and their print media platforms are non-existent. In fact, they actually pull against each other, and it probably is seeing the readership decline as it is. They ain't alone in that. I mean, some of the other magazines have not got it right either. You may know there's a new magazine coming out called Sea Fishing, which is a regurgitated title from the 80s of a now defunct magazine. That is getting run by, uh, I think it's Blaze Publishing. They intend to get this marriage right. Whether they manage to do it or not remains to be seen. But I think it's key. I think the two things probably go hand in hand. 
and a little bit of technical knowledge, younger editors, um, a lack of fear of the internet and the digital media is definitely required to make it work. How much longer then either can or will you give the pressure fishing? That is a good question and then the answer is, is I don't know, I don't know. I will probably do it until I drop if I'm absolutely honest. But as things change, I think you've got to change with it. I think we will probably batter on for another two or three years doing what I do, but I would like to change it. I mean, the truth is I've been trying to take my foot off the gas as far as competition goes for a long while. But when you have an, an addicted fishing doubles partner who wants to go here, there and everywhere, you sort of get sucked into their slipstream, and that's where I am at the moment. I think I would rather maintain a little bit of a, of a hand in what I do but I do a little bit with, with juniors and stuff like that I try to bring on other people who are interested in fishing I like to try and give a little bit more back but again it's, it's, it's a balance that is not so easy to strike I don't know I don't think we'll give it forever but I think there will be some level of, of participation at match level for the foreseeable future for the simple reason that some of the venues and matches that I go to now annually I don't necessarily go because I want to fish the competition. I go because the venue's good, some of the people, and I've met some brilliant people through fishing over the years. I've met some of the other sort as well, but some of the uh, some of the people that you meet, it's an opportunity to go and, and see them again and do things and enjoy the crack. And yeah, there's more to fishing than just actually fishing and catching fish. And, and I think I'm realising that a little bit more as I get older. And when eventually you do look back. Could you, would you, or should you have done anything any differently? Yeah, would I have done things differently? I don't think so. I think I would probably... I'm quite an impulsive person. When it comes to saying what I think, doing what I think, I tend to do it. I don't tend to sit on fences and I don't hide. I tend to grab the bull by the horns and I just charge at things. It has served me, I would suggest, reasonably well throughout my life and let's hope it continues to do that <laughs> I think given a, a clean slate and an opportunity to do it all over again I suspect I would do it exactly the same way can't say further than that well no, well, it's, um, as I say it's, it's, fishing's one of those things that once it's got you, it's got you and it's, it's definitely got me I don't think we would change a thing I think we'd keep going and uh, yeah, at the end of the day hopefully achieve the same things but you know what, even if we didn't it's participation, it's enjoyment, and, and there's, there's a certain amount of reward, there's a satisfaction in doing what I do, and, and to be honest, that's the fuel of my life. What age are you now? I'm 47 this month. And I got my first international cap at 19. If you add that together, that, that is like manic, and I was fishing really, really hard competitively from about 16 and a half, 17 onwards, basically since I got out of the juniors. That's been it, and at 100 mile an hour, I often say this when I'm sitting down at product meetings with people and stuff, is that I will probably pack more fishing, more talk about fishing, more of the peripheral stuff to do with fishing in a year than most people are doing 15. It's non-stop, to the extent that I can get pissed off with it. Do you know what I mean? I can get scunnered with it, it's a good Scottish word, I get too much of a good thing, and I need a break. And again, that then tells its own story because it's almost like it's becoming a job. And I think when it becomes like that, you've got two choices. You can either keep going and end up hating it and walking away, or you can say, right, enough's enough, I need a vacation. And you take a break. And I habitually do that each year by design now, so that come the start of the following season, that my enthusiasm is 100% again. It's self-management. I've, I've had to learn to do that over the years, because 
it isn't just about going out and fishing. It is, it's about the prep. It's about talking to people about fishing. It's about representing the brand. It's about product development. It's about this. It's about commitments to other people to do with fishing. And I mean, if, if, if there's anybody who hates fishing for a living, it's my wife. <laughs> You know, so I think it's just years of hearing me talking about it and doing this and bringing smelly bait in and out of the house and, yeah, you know, you know how it goes. Well, I'm 20 years on from you and, yeah, I still know what it's like. You always know that at some stage things must come to an end and you mentally prepare yourself for that. But when that time arrives, it's very much harder to deal with than you think it's ever going to be. Do I want or need to pack up now or can I squeeze just a little bit more out of it? And as you yourself said earlier, I'll probably do it until I drop, which I suppose when you think about it is a fitting way to go. For while everyone wants to grow old eventually, we don't want to be doing it just yet. The one saving grace here I suppose, and I've said this before, is that at least I, and I suspect you'll include yourself here too, had the good fortune to put in a shift when there were still good fish to be caught. So on that note, I think it's time to draw things to a close. All that remains is to thank Steve Souter for his frank and honest appraisal of a long, distinguished and ongoing fishing career. 